Well, good morning and happy Easter, everyone. It really is good to see you all and good to have you all here. Um, did anyone get up really early to do some kind of Easter egg hunt this morning? Okay, there's some parents nodding their heads. <laughs> Last night, okay, I know some people are even uh, delaying it till tomorrow. So if you got up really early and your kids were excited to get some chocolate in their tummies and then were more hyped up and energetic after they'd had their Easter eggs, I'm so sorry, but well done and thanks for being here. I know for some people this is their favorite day of the year. I know so for some people, Easter is the biggest day. They love to come and be with the church and to worship and to hear an Easter message and to do communion like we're going to do at the end. And people just get so excited about this day as we celebrate Jesus and the cross and His resurrection. It is a huge, huge thing. I do realize maybe some of you were up super early with your kids. Some of you might have just rolled out of bed at like 10 to 10 and got in here as if today is just a normal day. I realize some of you love today and some of you maybe are here under a bit of duress. Someone's like nudged you and forced you to be here today. Whatever your story is, that's so fine. I just want to say welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. And no matter what your story or your background or your experiences in life are, welcome. It is so good to have you here today and to be celebrating Easter together. I thought what I would do today, rather than just going through a typical stereotypical Easter passage, is I thought I would go through the bookends of the Gospel of John. So if you don't know this, John was Jesus' best friend. He's called in the Bible the disciple that Jesus loved. And in his Gospel, he starts with an amazing moment as Jesus launches his ministry. And right at the end, he has this amazing moment, this interaction with one of the disciples, which I think really speaks powerfully about the kind of man that Jesus was. So if you've got a Bible with you today, can you turn to John chapter 2? Otherwise, it's going to come up on the screen just behind me. And we're going to read from verse 1 to 11 together about a real celebration and party. It's the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And it says this, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to a woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So I thought I'd be kind and do the translation for you. It's about 75 to 113 liters of water in each one of those jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. It's really great to read a wedding story. I don't know if you know or want to take a guess at how much the average wedding costs in the United States today. Any figures you want to throw out at me? Really excited group today. Great to have you here. <laughs> Wonderful to celebrate Jesus' resurrection with you. One figure, two figures, anyone here? $10,000? 20 over there? Well, listen, we're doing okay. What was that, Matt? 5000 The average wedding, average, not high-end or low, is $26,444. So if we do the conversion, and because of the exchange rate these days, Shane could give us the figures straight away, that's over 400,000 rand. For an average wedding in the US today. Now, if you're married, 
I don't know what your wedding cost. Michelle and I's wedding was slightly less than that, but we did still have a really good celebration. But I think the point of that is today, marriages and weddings are a huge deal. A wedding celebration, a one-off moment where we get everyone we know together to witness us saying our vows and becoming husband and wife is a huge thing. But I think even more so in the ancient Jewish tradition, it was a huge thing. So in Judges chapter 14, we read about Samson's wedding. His wedding day lasted seven days. They invited a ton of people to it. I imagine like the whole town, village, people from far came to celebrate Samson's wedding. You know, Samson and Delilah, Samson, the strong judge. Seven days of feasting and drinking and celebrating together. Weddings were celebrated in a huge way back in the day. And this is where Jesus' first miracle happens in John chapter 2. And I want to correct myself intentionally because the Bible actually doesn't say that this is his first miracle. It says that this is his first sign. And there is a bit of a difference between the two. A miracle is a supernatural work of God, something we believe in. God does those things today. But a sign is something that points to something else. I think we all know that. We've probably driven past a ton of signs on the way here today. And Jesus here with this first sign that he does at this wedding in Cana is pointing towards who God is. He's pointing towards who he really is. And he's pointing towards the ministry that he is going to have in this world. But even if this is the first sign that Jesus does, and Jesus has very intentionally decided he wants to launch his ministry here at this wedding, I think we've still got to ask ourselves, even though weddings are a huge deal, why does Jesus choose this place and this time for his first sign? Why does he decide to do his first miracle here? And why is the first miracle he does solving a catering disaster? You know, you think of Jesus and you think he's more, he heals the sick. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. Jesus isn't really into solving these catering problems that you have at this wedding here. So what is the significance? And why, if this is him launching his ministry in a huge way, John wanting us to know this is how the supernatural ministry of Jesus looked, does he start with this? Obviously, this is pointing to something far greater than just water being turned into wine. So maybe a good question for us to ask ourselves up front is this. What is a marriage really about? What does a marriage signify? And the definition I found for you today is a marriage is a covenantal agreement between two parties on how they will be faithfully committed to one another and serve one another. That doesn't sound too straightforward, does it? I don't think we talk about covenants too much in our culture today. We talk about contracts a lot but covenants not so much. And I would assume some of you at the moment have been renegotiating your contract at work. Maybe some of you have started a new job and you've kind of negotiated your salary and your benefits and your days of leave. And you've said, if you give me those things, then I will work this amount of hours and I'll do this job for you. That's kind of how a contract works. It's a negotiation about what I'll do for you if you do the same thing for me. Now, I think in our culture today, what is starting to happen is marriages are starting to look more like contracts than covenants. So what that means is we think, okay, well, listen, Shell, I'll marry you. If you do this, 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 and this, then we're fine, and I'll do this, 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 and this for you. But if you break one of these points, then you're in danger. I might tear up that contract and move on to someone else. I think that's how our thinking has started to change and to work. And it happens the same with our relationship with God. I think a lot of people have gotten into a bit of a contractual mindset with God. So God, listen, if you do these things for me, 
these four or five things, then everything will be fine. And I'll do my church bit on a Sunday and I'll go to life group on a Tuesday night. I'll give some money to you and I'll live a pretty moral life. As long as you throw in that really cool eternal retirement package, then you and me are just fine, God. That's absolutely cool. But God, if you let me down on one of these points that I'm making, then I'm probably gonna tear up this contract. I'm not gonna serve you anymore. I'm not gonna live for you anymore. I'm not gonna do this Christian thing anymore, God, because you've broken the contract that I've made with you. That's probably the difference between a contract and a covenant way of seeing things. But what is a covenant if it's so different to a contract? A covenant is when we make an agreement outlining how we will serve the other. Something a little bit different, eh? So when Shell and I got married, we said vows to one another. And our vows were not contractual vows. I didn't say, Shell, I will love you if you dot, dot, dot. And I will care for you if you dot, dot, dot. And I will look after you and live with you all the days of our lives if you dot, dot, dot. That would be contractual vows. But our vows on that day, I made a promise to Michelle about what I would do for her. And I said, I will love you in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. There is no asterisk there with a little clause, unless you, and then sheesh, I'm going to make you hit the road, girl. Then I'm going to move on to someone else. So a covenant is a different type of relationship and agreement. And I think there's a reason that Jesus chooses to launch his ministry in John 2 around this marriage moment, this covenant moment. And I was thinking maybe it's because God is speaking to us and saying he doesn't want to have a contractual kind of relationship with us. He wants a covenant. That God is standing, speaking to the people of that wedding and to you and I today. And God is making promises to us that don't have conditions attached to them about how he wants to commit to us and to love us based on who he is, not on who we are. I think that's an amazing promise. In John chapter 2, Jesus goes to this wedding. And it seems to be the wedding of either a family member or a close family friend. And I say that because it seems like Jesus' mother Mary is in charge of the reception. So that's quite a huge responsibility. We know already what a big deal these weddings are. And Mary seems to be the one who is bossing around the service. She's going to them and saying, listen, you need to follow Jesus and do what he says. And he'll sort out this wine problem that we've got going on. And it would have been such a huge deal because these weddings were so massive. So you think about going to a wedding today. It's a Saturday afternoon. You know, you can kind of do what you want in the mornings normally. Generally, people get married at about two. So you arrive at two-ish and you go through till the night. It's half a day. But these guys were giving up a week of their lives to be part of a wedding celebration. So that meant you had to close down your business. It meant you weren't earning income that week. If you were traveling, you needed to organize and it would have been even longer for you. You needed to book a hotel. You needed to organize all of these things so that you could be part of the celebration. So it was a big deal to go to a wedding like this. So there were some, should we say, social protocols associated with this. If you went to a wedding, you expected a certain level of food and you expected a certain level of wine. And now with our weddings today, generally the brides make most of the decisions. I'm not trying to be sexist here and I'm not trying to be old fashioned, but I think often the brides do. They've got something in mind that they wanna do and the grooms kind of tick off on it and nod their heads and say, yes, honey, whatever you want, just tell me what I can do. But the grooms back in the day, they had a huge responsibility and a role. Their job wasn't just to show up on the day looking good and make sure they'd organize the honeymoon. The groom for these events had to organize all of the food and all of the wine. And because this is a seven day affair, it meant that they needed to organize a lot of food and drink. So if you were a poor man and you wanted to get married, 
You needed to hustle and make a plan so that you could organize all of this food and drink because it was going to be a huge social taboo if people showed up, closed their businesses, left home, came to this wedding, and then on day four, there's no more food or no more wine to drink. You needed to make a plan. You needed to be organized. Otherwise, you would actually bring a level of shame upon your wedding and upon yourself and upon your bride. And that's kind of the situation we enter into here. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, we've got a problem. There's no more wine. The wedding is not over yet. There's about to be shame cast on this day. Now, we don't know if the bride or groom knew this. It seems that Mary is trying to really honorably keep this under wraps. So her and a few of the servers are trying to sort out the problem. But if this gets out, this whole wedding day is going to be ruined. And I want you to remember this for the end. The groom has failed on his wedding day. The one job that he had to organize the food and the wine, he has dropped the ball, he has failed his bride, he has failed his family and friends, and because of him, there's this cloud of shame potentially hovering over this day. This day will be remembered as a day of failure if something doesn't happen. And I don't know the weddings you've gone to and the ones that stand out to you, or maybe the moments of weddings you've gone to that stand out to you. I was chatting to a friend of mine, Jody Hilda, the other day, and she was telling me about a wedding she went to where the bride was set. She is getting married outside. She's getting married under this tree and it's by this river and it had a huge sentimental connection to her. So she didn't want to change this come hell or high water. And a week before the wedding day, everyone's saying to her, listen, it's gonna rain. The weather is looking really bleak for this day. She said, I'm getting married outside under that tree. That's where I've wanted to do it. That's where I'm gonna do it. Three days before, Listen, it's looking really bad for the wedding day, hey? Should we not make a plan, hire another venue? We can do something. I'm getting married there. The morning of the wedding, it is raining. We've got to make a plan. We've got to do it. And she says, I'm getting married under that tree, whether it rains or not. And when the time came, the guests went and gathered outside, umbrellas up, gumboots on, stood in the rain, and the bride walked down the aisle. Jody said to me she doesn't remember hearing a thing because of the wind and the rain. It was miserable being outside. But she said that wedding stands out to her more than almost any other wedding. And it was a beautiful and fun day. And the bride is so thrilled because she got to get married in the place that she wanted to. To each their own cup of tea, I guess is the way to say it. But that, that was like a good story. That wedding is remembered in a good way, even though it was very different. I was watching a clip this week on YouTube, which I decided not to share with you because of the language and because it is um, Easter Sunday after all. But it's a video clip of a bride and groom getting married, and the best man is called up to come and bring the rings to the priest. And as he comes forward, he trips over the step, and he bumps the bride, and he bumps the priest, and they fall off the deck into the swimming pool below. And that's why a lot of words were said which I couldn't play in church. Maybe some other time I could show you. But the camera moves and the guy moves to the side and he's videoing the bride getting up out of the water and splashing the water off of herself. And the priest is holding his Bible drenched in water. And I don't know if the vows were said that day. I don't know if they actually got married. But I'm sure for that bride, that day was ruined. Even if they had a phenomenal reception, if she had a spare dress, her moment that she's been looking forward to since she was young She's just been absolutely soaked. What a horrible wedding day. So that's the kind of thing that's happening in John chapter 2. The wedding is going to be ruined because they've run out of wine. You can imagine this bride on the honeymoon. She is not going to be impressed. I don't know if anything's going to be happening on the first night because she's going to be saying, you had one job, my love, one job, and you dropped the ball. We had no wine, and we ended up not having enough food. So into this context of shame and failure and embarrassment, Jesus comes 
and Jesus comes to cover shame and to do his first public miracle or a sign that points to who God is, who he is, and the kind of ministry he's going to have. So let's read the section of what happens next. John 2, verse 6 to 8. It says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We know how much that is. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And Jesus turns the water into wine. It's probably a story some of us have heard many, many times. We're familiar with the water into wine thing. But I just want to look at two big ideas here. One is the quantity of wine Jesus makes, and the other is the quality of the wine that Jesus makes. So we've gotten the point that these jars are huge. Um, 75 to 113 liters per jar. There's six of them, so there's a lot of water or wine between them. In fact, if I, well, I did the maths for you. There's 450 to 680 liters of wine. Now, if we go by today's standards, 750 mils to a wine bottle, that means there were between 600 and 900 bottles of wine that Jesus made for this party. Now, I don't know how much wine you might have gone through at your wedding, but that is a lot of wine. And there's a point to that. These guys have been going for a few days already. They've already got through all the wine that the groom thought would be enough for the celebration. And now Jesus makes another six to 900 bottles of wine. And I do want to remind you, this is a godly community of people. This is a Jewish group. They wouldn't have believed in drunkenness. They wouldn't have been getting drunk at this wedding. So that means it's even more wine than you can imagine because they're not going to plow through all of it. So what is Jesus trying to say here? He's trying to make a point about excess. If you think about that moment when Jesus multiplies the food, there's 5,000 people out hearing him preach, and he multiplies the loaves and the fishes, and there's 12 basketfuls left over at the end. It's a picture of excess. Then there's a moment where Jesus multiplies the food, and there's 4,000 people, and at the end of that story, there's seven baskets left over. Now, of course, Jesus could have made just enough fish and bread for everyone there, but there's leftovers because our God is a God of excess. And at this wedding, six to 900 bottles of wine, Jesus is trying to make a statement that our God is a God of excess. He's not just a God of enough. He's a God of more than enough. And the wine in the story and the wine in the Bible is always a metaphor or a symbol of the grace of God or of God's salvation. And as we come and do communion just now, all of these shot glasses have got grape juice in them, which represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed on the cross for your sin and for mine. And we're going to drink that remembering the salvation of God and the grace of God. And we're going to celebrate who Jesus is and what he did for us. And I just want to make this point. When God dies on the cross for me and for you, it's not a small thing. God dying for man, the creator dying for creation is an excessive and huge thing. And it's just like at this wedding. God isn't giving just enough wine for the party. No, he's doing more than enough. Because God isn't stingy. God doesn't just do the bare minimum. And God isn't rationing his grace and his salvation with us. God is a God of excess when it comes to grace. And I am so grateful for that. So I've been a Christian for about um, she's 18 years now. I can't believe that. And there's this reality that over those 18 years, I've sinned a lot. I sin in my heart and my mind every day. I think sometimes I don't necessarily sin outwardly, so I'm getting better. But I need the grace of God every single day. And one dab of grace, once off for my life, is just not enough. I need that excess of infinite amount of grace for my sinfulness and for my imperfection to stand right before a pure and perfect God. So we've talked about the quantity already. What about the quality? 
I think sometimes we get lost with the, the sign or the miracle up front. Jesus has turned water to wine. And then there's a second thing. I think sometimes we get lost at the fact that there is so much wine that we just leave the story there and go, okay, cool, we can move on to John 3. That's pretty amazing. But really the money shot is in the quality. This is really where we get the huge aspect of what God is doing in this miracle at this wedding in this moment. And the first thing we need to understand is what is going on with these containers. So John 2 verse 6 says, Now there were six stone jars, therefore the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 75 to 113 liters. But what were these six stone jars? Well, they were these jars used for ceremonial cleaning. And what would happen is some of the Jewish people would wash themselves before they went into the temple as a sign that they were sinful and they needed their sins to be washed away before they came into the presence of a holy and a perfect God. So that's exactly what this symbolized. Now, of course, this isn't spiritual or supernatural. It's just a metaphor, the water washing them clean so that they could stand right before God. But still, it's a pretty powerful metaphor. Let me just push pause on there before I carry on. I'm sure at all the weddings you've been to, there have been moments where the groom or the bride have stood up and they've said, okay, now we just want to say a few thank yous. And they thank everyone who's there who's played a part in the wedding, the people who've done flowers and food, who've helped with whatever thing it might be. And then they thank those people who've come from far and wide. So thank you so much for coming to our wedding all the way from Cape Town and from Johannesburg. It means so much that you would do that. But to Aunt Patricia, you came all the way from California. That is such a huge deal. Thank you. And to Cousin Toby, you gave up your gap year this year and came all the way back from Tibet to be here with us today. Oh, you really just touched our hearts. Thank you guys so much for making the effort. And of course, this would be the same thing at this wedding here. Of course, people have come from far and wide to be at this wedding at Cana in Galilee. But there's a difference between our weddings and theirs. And that difference would be air conditioning. So you know, you drive to the Midlands in your car, you pump the aircon so that you are fresh and clean when you come out to this wedding. But some of these people have been traveling for far. And not in cars, on donkeys and camels, walking along dust roads, wind being blown on them. They're sweaty because it's the Middle East, it's really hot. Some dust is getting on their skin, they're dirty. Occasional camel or donkey pats on the feet. Some of the babies vomiting on your special wedding clothes. It's a pretty gross situation. And now you show up at this wedding, B.O. through the roof, body odor for those of you who don't know, and you want to come in and celebrate this special day with all of these people. Uh-uh. That's why the jars were there. They were there for cleansing. And I don't really understand how all of this worked. I don't know if you could kind of lock the doors, take off your clothes, and clean everywhere, and then put on a new outfit and go in, or if you just kind of scooped water onto yourself. I don't really understand. But the point that is coming across here is these are not decorative these are bathtubs and sinks used for stinky guests to clean up with so that they don't smell and so that they look okay for this wedding ceremony. It's pretty gross. I don't know if you've ever thought about drinking bath water before. And I don't mean your own bath water. That would be okay. I know some of you use beautiful oil of Olay's and Ylang Ylang's all over the bath. And there's these special foam baths from the body shop. And maybe your water would be okay to drink. But this is not just the water from one or two people. This is the bath water of hundreds of people. That now Jesus is saying, bring that. We're going to pour that into all of these fancy wine glasses and goblets that we've got to celebrate their day. Sounds a bit nauseating and disgusting, hey? Your bath water, maybe. All of this bath water, definitely not. 
And these jars are filled with the sweat and dirt and gunge and all sorts of stuff that have been on the bodies of all of these guests. It is disgusting and stinky. But Jesus is showing us something about himself and he's showing us something about the kind of ministry that he is going to have. And it's very, very significant here. You see where Jesus is going, hey? He gathers these pools filled with nasty, dirty, disgusting, filthy water, and he turns those, he converts those into something that is beautiful and that is expensive and valuable, something that you would be proud to serve at your wedding. And here Jesus is giving us the first revelation of what it is that he is wanting to do in this world. He's wanting to take dirty sinners like you and I and to wash us clean and to transform our lives and give us a new life inside of him. If you haven't gotten it yet, you and I are the dirty water jars in this story. And Jesus is wanting to transform them and to do a work of salvation and transformation. But there's more to the story than just that. In John 2 verse 9 and 10, it says, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now remember the wine was the responsibility of the groom. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom and says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drank freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus has taken what was disgusting and filthy and made it beautiful, higher quality wine than the groom could have afforded at first. And now the guests are drinking it and really enjoying it. I asked you to remember earlier that the groom is the one who has failed. He has brought shame on his family and he's brought shame on this day and he would have brought shame on his new bride. It would have been a really terrible moment. But here in the story, we're getting a contrast, a contrast of a groom who has failed and a picture of a groom who is perfect and a groom who will never fail. And in the Old Testament, um, God is uh, portrayed as a husband to Israel. And in the New Testament, Jesus is portrayed as a bridegroom. And this bridegroom is waiting for the wedding day feast that is to come when he returns and he takes his people to be with him. And I feel like almost in this moment, as Jesus is in this wedding, he pauses and he takes this moment to just look ahead and to daydream and to think about after his return, when that wedding feast will happen, when all of the people of God will be together and he will be among them and they will be celebrating and feasting and enjoying a perfect wedding day, not a flawed, imperfect wedding day like this, not where there will be a groom who has failed, but where there will be a perfect groom who has never failed and will never fail us. And it's into this moment that Jesus covers the sin and the shame and the failure of this groom. And I want to say here, like that bridegroom who failed, I will fail Jesus, but he will never fail me. Like that bridegroom who failed, I will let Jesus down, but he will never let me down. And like that bridegroom, my love for Jesus will kind of rise and dip over time, even though his love for me will be stable and constant and consistent throughout all time. In this sign... Jesus is uncovering who he is and the kind of ministry that he is going to have. And of course, Jesus is wanting to save this groom and his mother and his bride and all of these people from shame and embarrassment. And of course, Jesus could do anything, but this moment isn't about Jesus revealing that he could have started a vineyard and he could have made money off selling wine or anything like that. This isn't even about Jesus boasting about his raw power. Because if Jesus was going to do a miracle to really show off who he was, I think he did it the wrong way. It seems in the story as if Jesus has kind of done this undercover. The disciples and these few servers and his mother know what's going on, but no one else knows. If I was Jesus and I was wanting to launch my ministry, I would take the mic at the wedding. Get on stage. Sorry, everyone, can you hear me? Sorry, excuse me, my name's Jesus. 
just wanted to say hello, and I just wanted to unveil that I am the Son of God come to save the world, and I just wanted to show you my raw power today. And Jesus could have done some loops through the air and flown among the crowd. He could have turned invisible. He could have made things appear out of thin air, and he could have shot fireballs through the sky and amazed everyone. And I think the wedding would have been pretty amazed. Maybe for us, with like some of the magic and stuff that we see these days on TV, we wouldn't have been that wild. But I think for a crowd in good old rural uh, Cana, they would have been amazed. But Jesus isn't just trying to entertain the crowd here. Jesus isn't just trying to wow them. Jesus is unveiling who he is and the ministry that he has come to do, what that is like and what that is all about. And as I read this story, kind of like any story that I read or movie I watch or book I read or whatever it is, if you're like me, you try and put yourself in the place of the hero, you know? You want to be the person who saves the day, the brave, courageous one, the one who everyone kind of cheers for at the end of the story or whatever it is. But in this story, we are not the hero. We are not the Jesus figure, the miracle worker at all. He is that. We are these dirty water jars that are disgusting and really no one wants. And we are the bridegroom who has failed and who has brought shame upon his family. That's who we are in the story. But Jesus shows us that he is in the business of saving and transforming situations. He is the one who is able to cover the shame of the bridegroom who has failed. And he is the one who is able to transform the dirty bathwater into expensive and beautiful and delicious wine. He's the one who transforms that bathwater into the good wine, which will be celebrated. And he can do the same with your life and with mine. And this story of this wedding feast at Cana in Galilee might not be a traditional Easter message, but it is the story of the Easter message and of God's vision of what Easter is all about. It's a story of salvation and of the cross. And it's a story of Jesus who lived the life that we should have lived and who died the death that you and I deserve to die, doing something on our behalf. The Jesus who died on the cross, we remembered it on Friday, who died on the cross for the sins of the world that we could be reconciled to God, is the one who is raised from the dead. He's not just raised from the dead, conquering sin and death in this raw power, which should give us hope that God's power is enough for our lives and for our sin. But Jesus also ascends to the right hand of God in heaven. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has been praying for you for 2,000 years. And I want to say, church, I love it when you pray for me. Please pray for me. I would appreciate your prayers. I pray for you, and I trust that we pray for each other as a church. But beyond your prayers, I absolutely love the fact that Jesus is praying for me. I love the fact that for 2,000 years, since the cross and his resurrection and exaltation, Jesus has been praying for me and for us and for this church and for the work of God in this world. And now we look forward to Jesus' return, and we look forward to that wedding feast to come that will be far greater than any memorable special wedding we've been to in this life. And we look forward to being with God for all of eternity, where God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I think it's an amazing picture. On Easter Sunday, we don't just think of the brokenness in our world, and I'm sure all of us are reading the news at the moment about South Africa, about Donald Trump, about things going on all around the world, and thinking, what is going on in our world today? But today we don't just celebrate that Jesus is the Savior who can transform the broken, sinful situations around the world. But today we want to personalize this message and say that Jesus is able to save and transform the brokenness and sin in me, up close and personal, inside of me, what's going on in my life. And God has done something about our sin and about our brokenness, and about our imperfection, and about all of the junk that is going on inside of our lives. 
and he wants to give us a new life and a new identity and a new hope that is found inside of Jesus. But it's not disconnected from him and it's not even centered on him. It is him. Jesus is this hope. Jesus is this new identity. Jesus is this new life which he is offering and which we're talking about today. Now, after all of the stuff that's been going on with this wedding, do you know how the Gospel of John ends? The second to last paragraph in John, Jesus' best friend's biography of his life, ends with a story about Peter, and they're on the beach. In fact, they've been having a bit of a fish fry on the beach, I mean, eating some fish, Jesus, and some of his disciples sitting in the sand. And there's this moment where Jesus, God himself, the creator and savior of the world, is sitting across the table from Peter. And maybe to you that doesn't sound like such a big deal. That makes sense. You know, Peter was one of the great apostles, ended up leading the church in Jerusalem, the first church that ever existed. Peter led it. But in this moment, Peter has just failed Jesus horrendously. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't. But Jesus and Peter at the Last Supper are talking, and Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, Lord, I will never do that. I will die with you before I deny you. You're crazy. Don't say that kind of thing to me. But then Jesus, as he's being crucified, as he's walking towards the cross, looks and sees Peter deny him three times. In Jesus' most vulnerable and needy moment, the moment where he really needed the support and love and prayer and comfort of his disciples and friends, Peter is giving up on him. In fact, Peter at one point swears and says, I don't beeping know the man. I don't know him. I don't follow him. And we get this idea that Peter is so ashamed of Jesus. He doesn't want to be connected. He's worried about his own life, so he rejects his Lord and Savior. Now he's sitting across the table from Jesus, who he's just denied. If I was Peter, I would have felt like such a coward. I would have felt so ashamed and so guilty. I would have been so embarrassed. I wouldn't have known what to say to Jesus. I wouldn't have known what to do to make up for what I had done. I wouldn't have known, I guess, what I would have just wanted to get out of there as soon as I could. And sitting across from God himself, we have this moment of realization that the Peter who's sitting across from Jesus is the Peter who is those stone jars filled with dirty water and the Peter who is like that bridegroom who has failed and he sits there covered in shame. And how does Jesus treat Peter in that moment? Does he say to Peter, Peter, I want nothing more to do with you. Get away from me. You failed me and you've let me down. He doesn't say that. I think maybe I would. So I'm just warning you, Red Point Durban, don't cross me, otherwise I'll take you out. So Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say to him, listen, Peter, I'm not a God of second chances. So you've had your first chance out of here, man. He doesn't even say to him, listen, Peter, I, I bet my money on you. I trained you up. I gave you an opportunity. You failed at this job. So you know what I'm doing? I'm going to tear up that contract. I'm going to send you on your way, and I'm going to find someone else who can do what you couldn't do. That's not what Jesus does with Peter. And the way Jesus treats Peter is the way he wants to treat you and I today and you and I in this life. Jesus gives a man covered in shame and guilt his dignity back. And Jesus turns the filthy water inside of Peter's life into the good wine. And Jesus commissions Peter. And he gives him the job of leading the first church and taking care of the people of God. And he does all of this because Jesus doesn't do contracts. Jesus does covenants. And that's the Easter story. That's the vision of Easter that God is casting for you and I to see. That's what the cross is all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. And I want to say to you today, if Jesus did it with Peter, he can do it with you and I too. Can we stand together? And Graham and Josie are going to come up and lead us in a few more songs of worship. I'd just love to pray for us before.
I want to pray a very, very simple prayer. And as we sing these songs of worship together, I'd love us just to respond to God. And then we're going to come forward and we're going to do communion together as a community. But if we could pr- uh, close our eyes, if you're comfortable with that, and fix them on Jesus. Lord, we celebrate and thank you for Easter. And Lord, where we have failed you, would you forgive us and would you restore us? And Lord, where we are ashamed, would you cover our shame and give us a second chance? And where we are filled with filthy bathwater, would you make our lives into that good wine, Lord? We worship you and love you, Jesus. And thank you for who you are and thank you for your ministry and your example on the cross. Amen. Your breath come from heaven.